Hello, and welcome to episode 52 of Tech Swamp. Alex is out on vacation this time around, so I'll be filling in for her. And, you know, we have our hosts and friendly membership team per usual here today. Hey, Brad. Hey, how's it going? You know, it's it's going. Uh, Cassandra, what's going on with you? Hey, it's good. How are you? You know, I'm just membership chilling. And, you know, of course, I'm Caitlin. Um, so this month we are sitting down... Uh, with someone longtime listeners know as OGFOTP. Um, we also know him as our senior director for public policy, uh, Graham Dufault, to take us through the ins and outs of the bipartisan privacy bill on the Hill. We're going to be talking through several provisions uh, from preemption to safe harbor and everything in between. And of course, we're going to talk through what all this means for our members. But before we get into all that, we're going to hit tech history and run through some DC headlines. In honor of Pride Month, we are honoring and celebrating the accomplishments of computer scientist Sophie Wilson. Sophie Wilson was born in England, June 1957. She attended the University of Cambridge, where she studied computer science and discovered her love for innovation and computer science. She loved it so much, in fact, that over the course of uh, an Easter slash spring break, she just casually designed a microcomputer. No big deal. Uh, She then graduated and began to work for Acorn Computers in 1978, where she was instrumental in designing and developing the BBC Micro, including the BBC Basic Programming Language. By 1983, she began development of the Acorn RIS machine, something that is still used today in 21st century smartphones. Um, She's also been named one of the 15 most important women in tech history by Maximum PC, and she was made a commander of the British Empire in 2019. And the rest is tech history. That sound means it's time for What's Brewing in D.C. Brad and Cassandra, what are our top tech headlines? Earlier this month, Senators... Kirsten Gillibrand and Cynthia Loomis introduced legislation that aims to create a regulatory framework for digital assets like cryptocurrency. The Responsible Financial Innovation Act is hoping to encourage innovation in the financial sector, as well as flexibility, transparency, and robust consumer protections while integrating digital assets into existing laws. The bill will also create a flexible structure for the taxation of digital assets through a regulatory sandbox so that state and federal regulators can work together for the best possible outcome. We'll be talking about this bill as it continues to move through the Senate and have the latest info in the show notes. A legislative response is now being considered after last week's overturning of Roe v. Wade. House Democrats have indicated that they are considering legislation aimed at protecting the privacy of people who use reproductive health apps and connected health tools. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi said, Our caucus has been exploring avenues to protect health and freedom of American women. Among them is legislation that protects women's most intimate and personal data stored in reproductive health apps. We'll be sure to keep you posted on the legislative path of these bills in future episodes of TechSwamp. Some Senate Republicans have recently outlined some national security concerns posed by TikTok. In a letter to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, Senators Roger Wicker and Tom Cotton said the Biden administration has failed to enforce former President Trump's order that directed TikTok's parent company, 
ByteDance to divest its American assets and delete any data acquired through TikTok. This letter comes a week after TikTok announced it would begin to move U.S. users' data to Oracle servers in the United States. We'll keep you posted in future episodes of TechSwamp. And that's all for What's Brewing. As we mentioned earlier, we're being joined by OG FOTP, Graham Dufault, to talk about the new bipartisan privacy bill in the House. Hey, Graham. Thanks for hopping on the pod with us once again. Thanks for inviting me. It's good to be back. It's always a delight. Always a delight and informative. Um, <laughs> um, okay, so you're here to talk us through something that's like pretty top of mind um, and honestly has been since like at least 2018 um, when we sort of started dubbing it the year of privacy. Admittedly, we were way off of that uh, that year and basically every year since then. Uh, but the point is that this is something we and our members have cared about for quite some time, uh, which is federal privacy legislation. Yeah, and, and it's been two decades, pretty much, that Congress has been working on ideas to uh, require privacy controls, to, to, re- to make privacy requirements or data security requirements in 2018, we had a blog, to your point, Alex, that we thought it was going to be the year of the privacy. We, we talked about a privacy bill being the legislative unicorn and speculated, maybe, <laughs> you know, that like, maybe this is the year. And so uh, at that point, it, like, like I said, it, it had been already almost two decades that Congress had been grappling with it. And Sort of things started with the choice point breach in 2005, where the House and Senate well, uh, held hearings on that and tried to get to the bottom of it and um, started working on sort of a legislative solution to uh, the data security problem. And data security meaning how do you protect against unauthorized access? Mm-hmm. And privacy came after that, uh, I think, to, to some extent. Where when when I was working on the consumer protection subcommittee in the in the mid twenty tens, we thought of privacy as not being quite as ripe, but still part of the discussion. And at that point, we were working on a set of of data security requirements and then breach notification requirements because at the time there were like twelve, uh, thirteen uh, 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 data security uh, laws across the states. Uh, that didn't look exactly the same, and there were uh, also a handful of breach notification laws at the state level, where some laws would require notification of consumers in case of a breach within like 30 days, some were 45 days, some were uh, without unreasonable delay, and there were all these different iterations of what it might look like. <clears throat> so as as we were working on that issue, and as Congress was considering it, then um, you know, we had so many breaches in the interim where Equifax, Target, you know, Home Depot, uh, all in all these situations, you know, people were kind of shocked when their personal information was, was stolen and, and used to create uh, false identities or uh, to try and uh, steal, you know, steal their, their credit card numbers and things like that. Um, and all of that sort of fueled the, the fire of, of trying to, to address it or, or trying, to, trying to equip enforcers to better, you know, deter poor data security practices. 
And then <clears throat> it was maybe a month after that that blog post that uh, in 2018 that we put up that Facebook had the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And that was of even a different nature where Facebook was enabling access to data uh, that, you know, some of which consumers were allowing access to, but there, were, there was a bunch more like friends of friends and, and friends of the, the folks that participated in these uh, programs who did not expect their data to be used in the way it was. And that is sort of a privacy problem and highlighted to Congress that, you know, it's, it's probably time to start looking a little more seriously at not just data security, not just breach notification, but also privacy. What, you know, what should companies be held to and how should companies be held accountable for doing what they say they're doing with people's data? Um, so all of that happened and, and I think, um, I, I think uh, sort of help shape what the, what the real problems are and help uh, Congress better uh, position itself to figure out what the legislative solution should be. Cool. Well, thank you for that mini tech history lesson there, Graham. Um, so what you're saying is clearly privacy is something we and our members care deeply about, which is why we're so excited to see this new bill introduced in the House. Graham, you recently testified on the Hill about the importance of a federal privacy law for our members. So can you kind of talk us through the ins and outs of the bill? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the bill t takes on a lot of different things, but for our member companies, one of the things that I highlighted for the committee was number one, that the bill must enhance consumers' trust in software-driven goods and services. And that means that its requirements have to be strong and meaningful. And in, in software, that's, a, that's an especially important task because as anybody that, that sells software or sells a product or service that has a software component knows, um, Consumers are taking a leap, of, a leap of faith when they download it uh, onto their device, and uh, that uh, you know the conditions need to be in place for people to understand that uh, what they are getting is not going to compromise their device. It's not going to hurt uh, their privacy, and that you know the company that's that's using their data to provide a service is not doing something unexpected. So it's requirement, the requirements of a bill have to be meaningful. And then number two, the bill has to provide legal certainty. Um, and so the draft, there, it's a bill now, but uh, uh, last week when I testified, it was still a draft. Um, the American Data Privacy and Protection Act, uh, or ADPPA, that I would say, you know, and most of us who've been watching this would say it's the closest we've ever been to a compromise bill that achieves both of the goals that, that we have. Uh, there are a couple of suggestions that we had to, to improve the bill. The bill has a private right of action, so a violation of you know, any part of the act, and it's a 60-some page bill, uh, <clears throat> or a regulation promulgated under the act, which adds a lot of pages to the requirements, you know, um, would enable an individual to file a lawsuit for, for a violation of almost all the all of the bill not not quite all of it there's a couple of exceptions and there are a couple of safeguards there that that help us feel a little more comfortable because the uh, the concern is that 
if there is a private right of action, that it would be sort of an invitation to create a like a predatory business model of suing and settling with companies, kind of like we've seen with patent trolls where they send a demand letter for infringement and then kind of lean on the notion that a small company will just settle instead of uh, hiring an attorney and fighting. And so the litigant in the, in the bill, in, in the privacy bill, has to first notify the FTC and the state attorney general before bringing a claim and then issue a demand letter clearly identifying the provision at issue and then the target, you know, the company that they're seeking to sue would have the right to cure the violation within 45 days. And that's if the, if the remedy being sought is an injunction or if the target is a small company. Hmm. And so the, the protections there help. And, you know, we, we offered a couple of suggestions for them to consider to, you know, make the, you know, further deter uh, nuisance lawsuits, things like, um, uh, requiring a litigant to show that a violation was a knowing violation instead of just an accidental issue uh, and things of that nature. But um, in addition to those safeguards, you also have um, a compliance program for small companies, and, and we'll get to that in a second, but that does help uh, stave off uh, potential nuisance lawsuits, lawsuits that we would be concerned with. And then, you know, the bill sets a a national standard so there's a preemption provision saying that the law or, or the act would preempt state laws that are covered by the provisions of the act mm -hmm. uh, there are about 16 exceptions to it and and that makes it a little difficult because courts are pretty unpredictable as they try to interpret express preemption provisions like the one in that bill um, and so every every exception uh, calls into question whether or not Congress really means to set a national standard and it can kind of put at risk uh, uh, the idea that we're preventing a, a patchwork of state laws. Mm -hmm. um, and then <clears throat> I mentioned this a, a minute ago, but the, the compliance programs for small companies are, are a really important piece of, of the privacy bill um, because small software and connected device companies they want to comply with strong privacy and data security regimes. Uh, safe, par safe harbor programs or compliance programs like, like the one you see in the bill help ensure they have the resources to do that. And they send a signal of quality to the market so that people who are looking at you know, products and services or, or apps that they provide, and they see that it has a compliance seal, uh, sends a signal that you know, they're, every bit of, everybody's good or better than like, the larger companies that are competing with them. On privacy and security, uh, and then there's you know the the data minimization and consumer rights pieces. Those are I don't want to overlook those be, uh, because those have been difficult you know things to get right. Uh, they appear in in the state laws, uh, but they the negotiators here did a pretty good job of striking a reasonable balance on these and. And by consumer rights, we're talking about the right for consumers to access data about themselves, the right for consumers to correct data about themselves, and you know the right to opt out of uh, the sale of, of information about themselves. So um, those are pretty fundamental issues that kind of are reflected in, in the fair information privacy principles and then also uh, the general data protection regulation over at the EU. So 
so um, yeah, those are those are pieces of the bill. Those are the things that we talked about during uh, during the hearing and the stuff that we sort of pointed to the to the committee as they were kind of working on on the draft. Um, and what about like how do you see this like really impacting our members? Like, do you have an example that we could sort of like illustrate kind of the the impact on on a member? Maybe like how it look. Yeah, there are um, a few examples you could think about. The one I pointed to in, in testimony is is Think Amingo because uh, you know because they're they're based in Tampa. I wanted to make sure that we pointed to a, a constituent company for for either the ranking member or the chairwoman. Um, and I think uh, because Think Amingo serves school age kids, that is that's a that's a good example because the bill does have provisions that require companies to do a little bit more when it comes to data that they know is about a, uh, a 16 year old or under. And <clears throat> so there are all of you know those provisions in the bill, but then there's also the existing, the pre-existing Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, which, which applies to, is it 12 and under or under 12? 12? That's 13 and under. 13 and under. It's COPPA, yeah. 13 and under, <laughs> yeah. okay. <laughs> I knew that. Uh, I didn't. But I forgot. <laughs> I, <didn't. laughs> I forget. I forget that stuff. And I should not. Um, so, so you've got that pre-existing, you know, framework, and and Children's Online Privacy Protection Act requires you to get before you get collect uh, data under its purview. You know, data about somebody who's thirteen and under. Um, you got to get verified parental consent, and that's a that's a major that's a major compliance burden not not even just for the company but for parents yeah and that that is fundamentally you know we talked about there was a lot of back and forth during that hearing about how is COPPA working and what tweaks should we think about for COPPA going forward and is is the uh, quote-unquote actual knowledge standard the problem when it comes to COPPA and you know our my response was really the problem is um uh, having to get verified, verifiable parental consent, all the, all the steps that, that a parent needs to go through. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, think Amingo is a is a good example because it it does can contemplate uh, you know uh, kids and uh, it pr provides this super valuable um, assistance to, to to kids for developing creative writing skills and, and things like that. So um, that's why. I thought of Think Amingo, um, especially uh, as they're looking at what does the world look like under this potential new law. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think the, the answer is that it will be a little bit more complicated, but that it, things are very complicated already mm -hmm. with, with the current COPPA regime, with the current federal FTC Act, um, and with uh, the increasing number of state laws. We've got five on the books now. Uh, that are going to affect how they uh, yep. how they do business. Absolutely. So this this dovetails in very well um, into my next question, Graham. We had you on the global crossover episode back in December of last year, where we were talking about kind of what we can expect from the EU and the US about a whole range of issues. Um, one of the issues we talked about was privacy on the Hill in 2022. Mm -hmm. And I think it's definitely worth noting 
that you outlined then what we're saying now and that's privacy is one of the main issues that we followed for years and that's definitely has not changed this year and maybe our urgency is kind of continuing to grow you touched on the state patchwork um concern can you talk to us about about those concerns and maybe what some some other reasons are why why we're seeing this as as urgent absolutely and the state patchwork is really interesting because the last few laws that have been enacted have used the same basic framework Mm -hmm. but they have little differences here and there that would require companies that are are going to require companies to uh, approach a compliance with with each of them a little bit differently and not only that uh, but we all also are seeing states already starting to think about how they're going to update those laws or or perfect them Mm -hmm. really it's 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 um in the nature of perfection that they're that they're kind of uh tweaking the state laws they're not there's not like some fundamentally new problem or issue or Mm -hmm. risk that they're trying to address it's just they're trying to make it you know either easier to comply with or um slightly more protective in x y and z ways uh but the bottom line is that that uh, continued uh, um revisiting of of the law shortly after it's enacted just adds additional layers of uncertainty and can continue to sort of create this divergence between the different states even if they are starting from the same um, uh, framework and so i would say that the patchwork is um, kind of an evolving problem Mm -hmm. (laughs) and probably gets more expensive compliance wise while not necessarily uh, protecting everybody in the same way. And the longer we go, the longer consumers go without having a national law that um, the consumer groups in, the, in last week's hearing pointed out, um, each of them pointed out that the, the draft we were considering was more comprehensive, uh, more protective of consumers, um, and had better enforcement mm-hmm. than any of the state laws. Mm-hmm. And so the longer we go without a bill like what we're seeing, uh, the longer consumers in any state, even the states where privacy laws are enacted, don't benefit from better privacy protection and data security protection. So those are those are issues, too, that, that I probably point out. And, and all of that inures to the benefit of app makers because it helps them uh, show to consumers that what they're doing with their data uh, is beneficial and and that they can be trusted to provide products and services that are not kind of working against consumers and, and, and treating the consumer as the product, but instead uh, creating something meaningful and useful for, for people. Yeah, absolutely. I also, um, you kind of touched on this before, but I also just think um, sort of recognizing that right now sector-specific privacy law is sort of what we get at a federal level, and it's also in super specific instances, like HIPAA is a great example, where it's like so limited to who's covered that like, both from a consumer perspective and from like a small our members like what you get is this like level of clarity that has not existed at all exactly and And it's so critical it's so important for that to be true for for consumers that that expect something specific out of out of companies and right now i mean to your point about hipaa uh it's amazing the misunderstanding out there just generally about HIPAA's scope and coverage and what it does and what it doesn't do. Um, I think a lot of people think it covers any health data, 
but as you pointed out, it's only very specific covered entities and business associates and, and really not, um, it doesn't cover uh, most health apps. And I think a, a, a privacy law that addresses the risks of health information outside of HIPAA is really important. And it's one of the reasons we you know, wrote a letter last year to the committee saying, you know, the, 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 the settlement with, with flow is one of the main reasons mm -hmm. we need a, a federal privacy law so that FTC has what it needs to uh, bring an enforcement action against, against companies, companies like that that are using data in unexpected ways. Uh, it, and now it's especially important for, for that to be true. So um, that's a major reason why we need to do privacy law. Absolutely. Totally agree. Um, so before we let you go, um, what what can we expect moving forward with this bill? Like what, what comes now? So it is in election year, which means that we're on a really short timeline <laughs> mm -hmm. going. Uh, <clears throat> I think it's probably true that we we shouldn't expect anything major bipartisan to happen uh, in September or later. And that and, and August is, is the recess for both the Senate and the House, and so that means next month will be a critical month for this bill. Yeah. And it's they, they call this bill that we're talking about here the Three Corners Bill because when it was a draft, the, chair, uh, the chairman of House Energy and Commerce and the ranking member of House Energy and Commerce, so both the Republican and the Democrat that lead the committee, uh, signed on to the draft. And you also have the lead Republican on the Senate side Commerce Committee sign on, but the chairwoman of the of the Commerce Committee has not signed on, and she's got her own draft that uh, she is also fine tuning in parallel. Uh, and so, <clears throat> best case scenario for this bill would be that it passes the House, and then once it gets to the Senate, the the House the House version probably won't be taken up as is, right? And I think uh, the Majority Leader Schumer made that pretty clear. Um, and so instead, you know, you might see uh, the Senate come out with their version and then they kind of conference the two mm. or um, or the Senate version passes and then the House has to resolve differences in committee or something like that. So um, it still has a ways to go. And uh, there's not universal agreement even among the, the, the four most important uh, members of Congress when it comes to this. So um, it's got a tough a, a tough road ahead, but uh, it is not impossible, and I think we're uh, we're hoping to continue to have a, a seat at the table to just can, like help them uh, come to an agreement. Yeah, absolutely, and we'll be obviously tracking this very closely um, and keeping uh, our listeners. Uh, updated um but also want to make sure everybody uh does check out our show notes we'll have graham's testimony we'll have links to the bill we'll have links to a couple blogs that we've written about the bills and those sorts of things um so definitely check out show notes um graham as always this was a delight thank you so much for joining us thanks for having me and now it's time for our random identifier Cassandra, since you're still the newbie, you're up first. What do you have for us? Yeah, so um, I am currently in a more exciting part of my life. I am looking for new apartments, um, and I'm looking to move to out of Virginia. Um, Brad, I know you'll enjoy that. So, yeah, I'm going on tours, like, day after day, and it's super exciting. It's a very exciting place to live, the Commonwealth of Virginia. <laughs> 
You know, I I hate to see a DC girly cross cross the river, but you have to follow your heart. And I heard that West Virginia, or I'm sorry, whoa, whoa. Virginia <laughs> is for lovers. So yeah. I guess I guess we can we can be happy for you. <laughs> the possibilities are endless. It's true. Although I I do not uh, envy the amount of tours that you're doing. Uh, the last time that I was in the market for an apartment my uh, fiance and I probably looked at 20 different apartments. So I do not envy the journey you're on, but good luck. Thank you. Yeah, it is a lot, but it'll be worth it in the end once I find my perfect place. Is there anything that you like absolutely have to have or like absolutely cannot deal with? Um, My one thing is that I, you know, I took my car back to Ohio a couple weeks ago, so okay. I will no longer have a car. i desperately need to be on like a transit route so i'm looking at orange and silver lines preferably because they take me right to mcpherson square like a block away from work so mm-hmm. yeah those are that's like my biggest thing and then i just i need space i need closet space and i need a good sized kitchen because i love to cook so okay if yeah. there's any realtors out there that are listening to this episode of tech swamp and they're interested <laughs> in helping cassandra and her friend find the perfect home um, please reach out via uh, Instagram DM, uh, Twitter DM. Uh, our handles are act online. You can find us there. <laughs> Amazing. Good plug. We're gonna get you. We're gonna get you an apartment through this podcast. Thank um, you, <laughs> Brad. What do you have going on? Is it musical? Is it not? Surprise me. It sure is, and it is <laughs> a band that I have talked about before, and that's Spacey Jane. But the reason I'm bringing them back up is because they actually just released a new album last week, and it is fantastic. Mm -hmm. I actually played it in the membership office the other day, and we all got to sink our teeth into it a little bit. It's just a great, uh, you know, it's really based in reverby surf rock, but at the same time, it's very melancholy with the lyrical themes kind of contradicting the general (laughs) vibes of the music. So big fan, can't, can't wait until they... They're going on their first U.S. tour ever this fall. And I, oh, believe you me, I'll be there. Um, Well, I am very happy for this development. I'm even happier that we got to preview the new music in the membership office. Um, Always a good day when we get to jam. Sure is. Couldn't be more excited. What what do you have to talk about? I was going to say, unfortunately, mine isn't super, like exciting and fun but it is spooky um i i have to talk about alexa's new voice feature um that mimics the voices of dead relatives um which i'm sure is a really excellent tool for people who are grieving um yes i i can't wrap my head around this and i do feel like it's black mirror vibes um it's just not sitting right with me and I do feel like it's spooky but not in a fun way um so I'm just trying to grapple with with the dead relative Alexa um and I'm hoping Google my Google home does not pick up those traits um I I don't I don't want to hear that love pap pap not trying to hear that yeah I think I'm in a a similar boat the only time I should hear the voices of uh, dead relatives would be in a recording that I already own 
like listening back to like maybe a voicemail. I know some people cope with that mm-hmm. or like watching some home movies, home that movie, type of stuff. Yes. But yeah. But Alexa speaking in a dead relative's voice is not on the list of things that I would find comforting in any way. Yes, it's not the fact that it's like you're hearing the voice. It's it's that it's Alexa doing it and like you know, she can think she thinks things. I know she does. I, I don't. I don't want her saying something that she shouldn't say, in oh, no. my dead relative's voice. Like I just, my mind immediately went to chaos, and I thought of like all of the ways this could be used against someone. And I really think that Amazon should reconsider. Alexa is sentient now, and it has yeah. the voice of your dead relatives. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, okay, well that's gonna be it for Tech Swamp this month. If you heard anything on here that piqued your interest, head on over to the website and make your way to the podcast section. We'll have notes on today's episode that include links to all the good stuff. And we now have transcripts available. You can find them in our show notes as well as on podscribe.com. Just search TechSwamp. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. And of course, we would love a rate and review. Five stars only, please. All right, well, that's all for today, folks. Everyone say bye. 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 Bye.